what are you at today? Yeah. So the business valuation is now we the last one we did was a little over 200 million. But we valued that was this like January or so. So we had that 200 mark. And then this year, our ground breaks are going to be about $70 million this year. And then next year, we're on track to do $100 million, And the year after that, we're on track to do 150 So very similar to what I said about a year ago, which is exciting that we're on track. So we're rolling. Dude, that's insane, man. And then, and then how old? So you're 30 now or 29? 29. Yeah. Welcome to the Action Academy Podcast. Stand back while I celebrate freedom. The show where we help you achieve financial independence with the mindsets, methods, and actionable steps from guests who've already earned their freedom. The flags of freedom fly. Choose to do what you want. What you want. With who you want. With who you want. When you want. When you want. With another episode today. Now, here's your host, Brian Lubin. Round two, round two. What is up, Mr. Abernathy? How you doing? I appreciate you having me back on. Dude, yeah, I had a... I guess I I had to call in the C squad. B squad was unavailable. <laughs> a squad was unavailable. So I had to call you in. And no, it is. It's I okay. Was wondering. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just glad dude. I'm on your list somewhere. That's all I need. <laughs> dude, I'm excited, man. Today's going to be a really cool update episode. For people listening, Andrew's got one of the most popular podcast episodes on Action Academy. So if you guys go check it out, I'll click the, I'll include the link in the show description. You guys can go listen to his original one with his backstory which is insane. But today we're going to be focusing more on the present and the future versus the back story and like kind of the origin story, man. Last year we were talking, I think you were hovering around the $80 million mark for the net worth and then for the business valuation. Like, what are you at today? Yeah. So the business valuation is now, we, the last one we did was a little over 200 million. But we valued, that was this like January or so. So we had that 200 mark. And then this year, our ground breaks are going to be about $70 million this year. And then next year, we're on track to do $100 million. And the year after that, we're on track to do 150 So very similar to what I said about a year ago, which is exciting that we're on track. So we're rolling. Dude, that's insane, man. And then, and then how old? So you're 30 now or 29? 29. Yeah. All 29. Yeah, man. So what's your goal by 30? I'd say by 30, I would like to be doing the 12 a year. I'd like to be opening a new $20 million facility every month. So we should be able to be dang close to that. It's 200, $240 million a year. Because yeah. we build them 30. for the one, we build them for about 15. But yeah, they're worth 20 to 25 when they're done. So yeah, whichever one you want to, but I'd like to do 12 a year. It's one a month. Dude, oh my God. All right, so let's unpack this a little bit about why you are choosing to do ground-up development and new new builds for your storage. So first, I guess let's give an introduction for people that are brand new that haven't heard your episode about who you are, what you do real quick. Yeah, Andrew Abernathy, CEO and founder of Abernathy Holdings. So we develop own self-storage facilities. On the last episode too, to bring up to touch on that is self-storage, We I realize back in 17, it was a very fragmented industry. On our last video, I think I mentioned that 95% of the self-storage was Mon Pa, and only 5% was the REITs. Back in 2017, when I got involved, that was the first year that public storage, extra space, CubeSmart, that's when they started allowing people like Marriott used to do for hotels, 
they started allowing people to use their name and branding on their facilities without being them. And that was the game changer for me in the industry. It made it more scalable and easy to own. So the current data now is 20% of facilities now are owned by the REITs and 5% are managed by the REITs, but they don't own. And that's where we're at. We're that column and it's growing as anticipated from our last call. So that's a fun stat to bring up. But yeah, we develop everything ground up. We're big believers in vertically integrated company, being a vertically integrated company. We've got garage door dealership, uh, equipment dealership, construction company, land team. So basically dirt the door, we own the process and then we keep the building. Man. Okay. So a lot to unpack there. So first and foremost, let's unpack the strategy of this. Let's unravel this Marriott strategy because I think that's super interesting. And it's the same concept. We had Brian Beers in the podcast. He's a massive franchise guy. So he owns, I think, 47 Midas stores. So when he buys a Midas store, it's essentially buying a business in a box, right? That's how he phrases franchising at in the macro scale. So is this a strategy that is open for everyone is this is there any barrier to entry what are the pros and cons of taking like a franchise kind of model here as opposed to the kind of traditional self-storage acquisition model that we see get more and more popular as time goes on where people are like okay i'm gonna buy this mom and pa distressed self-storage that's back of the napkin revenue they're keeping their PL on loose leaf paper and they're paying cash only we're gonna put credit card processors we're gonna put some new paint we're gonna manage this ourselves What are the pros and cons of doing this franchise method? And is this something you'd recommend for newer investors? Yeah, I think that's where you start out. Because I didn't just, again, I've been doing this since 14, not just storage, but real estate in general. I didn't just jump in and start building $15 million facilities. So What? (laughs) Yeah, shocker. Yeah. So I think what you said is right on. The reason that we do the REITs is because we're looking to go and build 100 of these between now and 2030. And you want to build 100 of them. You want, we're doing them in major cities dense populations and we want their algorithms, their branding, and we don't want to run the stores because us building a hundred of these, that's going to take a lot of work out. Of, that's going to be a lot of work for all of our employees, let alone trying to staff and become trying to figure out how to be the best manager. So for our situation of scalability, this is best. But yeah, if you're getting started out and you're like, hey, I've got a hundred thousand bucks in cash or 200 grand in cash or 300, I want to go buy one and then I want, and I want to make the most money I can out of it. You can probably get higher cap rates by buying a class C, class B facility and running it yourself. And then your cap rates even higher, right? You can do a great job at that. But again, you want to, if you want to be a billionaire, you're going to have to learn how to graduate from that scale, which a lot of people don't, which is fine. Cause again, back to the five F's, right? Everybody's success story, everybody's dream. It doesn't always have to be involved about money. So. It depends on your dreams. If you want to be a billionaire, though, you're not going to get there by a bunch of Class C facilities. There's just no scalability to it. All right. So what's a billion-dollar question? How does somebody that's listening to this, let's really talk about this in the perspective of somebody that you have a couple of different levels, right? So you have the person that's looking into self-storage as an asset class in general. So we'll probably be a bit above that in today's episode. But let's talk maybe to the, some, somebody that's already operating some self-storage, already operating some multifamily, or they're in the space, like in the ecosystem, in the climate. What, what are some billion-dollar questions? What are some good questions to ask? You know, just some thought process in general, and I think that'll be to your point, is the biggest thing about scaling in real estate is capital. Right? It's a very capital-intensive business. So there's a lot of ways to get access to capital. One is you do it yourself, which takes time. You start out with a dollar and you want to compound at 15%. 
it's going to take you many years to be building 12 a year. The other model is you put your cash in, you go raise money like I did. I still own 33% of Abernathy Holdings, but I've raised over $100 million, and I've had, but I've had to sell the other part of the pie off to do that. That's one option, get where you want to go a lot quicker. But three, and what Gary did, which is really cool, and that's what, and all we've done it too, is if you can find a way to lim- lower your down payment requirements for a property, and that's what Gary did. So back in the 80s, and so do we, when, we're, when he was building hotels, the banks, hey, you need 300 grand down. Well, Gary would be his own realtor, would be his own construction. He'd have his own construction company, he'd be all of his own things. So by the time he had to go to the bank for his down payment, he would just say, oh, I'm just going to forfeit all my profits. And that's his down payment. So now all of a sudden, he could build these with no cash out of his pocket. It was just his, t- his, his vertical company's profits were used for the down payment. So now it's unlimited. It changes the whole formula. So that would be my advice. If you're at that position where you've got a few of these, you've got good equity, that's how you can scale is try to create those verticals so your down payment requirements are less, which will allow you to build much more. Dude, I think this is more of a conversation on vertical integration than it is about self-storage now. Oh, 100%. Like, I like, self, I like self-storage. Self-storage is cool, but let's throw it out the window. Let's really let's hit on M&A, man, because this yep. is super interesting to me. And it's something that a lot of people like, it is something that you have to graduate to because this is where wealth is. Like this right. is where like the PE guys, like the Black Rocks, the Black Stones, people that are buying and selling these massive companies, M&A is the real deal. It's the show, right? Yep. So you just said that about Gary, who's your billionaire mentor, by the way. You want to give a quick intro to Gary, a two-second synopsis of how you were introduced to him? Yes, I called Gary about 10 years ago or so. He's a North Dakota billionaire and just wanted to learn about him and learn his story. And I wanted to mimic it. And so he took me under his wing, thank goodness. And we became partners. So he owns 50, so 50, 50. So Abernathy Holdings and Therald's family were 50, 50 and everything we build together. So it turned out to be partnership, but started out as a mentor, mentor E, that's the right word. (laughs) (laughs) And you're under, you're underplaying how many years. So how many years did you guys, so I think it's important to like emphasize this. Otherwise, I would just glance yeah. over it. But for people listening, like none of this happens. So Andrew's about to be like a billionaire, billionaire in his early 30s, most likely here. So there's a very Maybe clear path. 30s, but hopefully, early. okay, yeah, late 30s. <laughs> oops, but it's just like, there's a very clear path to get there. And every single Luke Skywalker needs a Yoda. Is Warren Buffett had his mentor. Like Jeff Bezos had his mentor. Every single person has like that person. So talk a little bit more about that the ori- origination of that relationship and how many years you spent before a transaction was actually done like through on the business table. Yeah, I'd say it was a six, seven years of just relationship building. And then I finally, it's like asking your wife to marry. I, mean, I think I blacked out when I asked him, hey, do you want to invest in me? That was probably six, seven years into it. So about three, four years ago. So there's a lot of buildup. And again, I just got the guts and finally asked. I basically got it to the point. I thought everything he told me, I, it was the gospel. And I got the company to a point. So my pitch to him was something, again, I blacked out. It was something like, Gary, I've done everything you said I, w- I should do. And we built a facility. Like I did everything he said and he loved it. And then finally, he's like, yeah, that sounds great. And it's been nothing but an honor to work with him and his family. And I just hope to continue that down the road, which I'm sure we will. So it's, but his story is amazing. The fact that he was able to go from at 39 years old, starting the hotel business from North Dakota. And I think he's built 500 hotels to date and he's never had investors either. 
That's crazy. But banks were different back then, too. So let's talk about the pros and cons of the vertical integration strategy like you said that he did. So when you say this, here's the first thought that pops into my head. So you were said, okay, so Gary owned this company, like the realtor, real estate business, like the construction company, all this different stuff. And so he was able to bring that profit down as like down payment. He was like, okay, I'm going to waive this fee, waive this fee, waive this fee. And like, that that's awesome. And like that, I feel like that's like level 70 or level 100. Yeah. But for somebody that's getting started, I'm trying to think because a problem that a lot of people run into is they're operating like five businesses or 10 businesses. And they think that this juggling act is how entrepreneurship is about to be done. But now I can speak from the perspective of somebody that is like shutting down a lot of businesses and just focusing on my one thing, keeping the one thing. It's like such a superior way of going about business. So I'm curious about your perspective there. And, and how does this process work? How does this process look in building each one of these businesses? Focus I first want to start with that focus is 100% the way to become wealthy. Crazy wealth is built on one thing and it's preserved on many. So if you want to be a billionaire, do not diversify. Pick one thing. We talked about that in the last episode. Yeah. Everybody always is looking for the idea. There is no the idea. You find an idea and you make it the idea because I could have found hundreds of storage ideas. I just found storage. I liked it. I picked it and that's all we do. So the verticals are... It's a pyramid model. They all are in existence to push forward and be better at our focus. We don't build self-storage for other people. We don't sell garage doors to other people. We are we do so much work internally. It's a huge business on its own. The construction companies, again, next year, are going to do $100 million in ground breaks. And it's just our own projects. We're going to sell about, oh gosh, 8,000 garage doors to ourselves next year, just to ourselves. We rent our own equipment. So I think to go into your question now, after talking about focus is important and the verticals are created to do what you're doing for less and more efficient. I didn't create a construction company to go and start bidding other projects. Cause then you get in bonds and you get in a lot more risk in scenarios where if it's over budget, then you're stuck with it. And we don't do any of that. But the biggest thing is finding your who. So it's not the how, it's the who. Jesus had 12 disciples, so I, don't, I make sure I have no more than six who's. Yeah. Because that's as <laughs> good as obvious. Nobody is. I would say, figure out what verticals could be created. And what I always did is I worked backwards. So I said, okay, for me to own my own construction company, I would need to do at least three facilities a year to make it pencil. Okay, there you go. So uh, you write that down. So when we had three facilities a year, we opened a construction company. And I had a guy in line that's been doing it for 50 years, right? 40 years. We need to do one a year to have our own garage door dealership. Okay. So you, you draw this roadmap and then you just work to, hit, to keep growing. And when you hit those intervals, then you start that company and you don't, you do start it. But again, you have that who that you say, Hey, here's the deal. Come on in. Great salary. And they set it all up for you. They're passionate about it and they run it. When you're casting your vision for Abernathy Holdings, the a billion dollar skill set that I'm still in the process of learning right now is casting a vision large enough for other people to accomplish all of their wildest hopes and their wildest visions within your vision. 100%. So for instance, like I have I have uh, my right hand is basically Caitlin, my business Action Academy. And so I'm like, "Hey, you're important in my world." So now I call her my air, head air traffic controller. So Love she that. makes sure that everything is operating and flowing left sideways back and forth. And so I'm like, 
hey, stick with me and I will carve out a part of my world. I'll make my world big enough to where you can become a multimillionaire within my world. And I'll give you a very clear path here. So when you're casting vision for your company in a macro scale, what does that process look like? And what does that vision have to look like for these massive who's to be attracted to that? And what's some advice you can give to somebody that's crafting their vision? Yeah, that's the biggest thing is your dream. Your dream's got to be huge to be a billionaire and to get because nobody's built a billion dollar company on a set at one set of hands. You need multiple sets, right? Correct. And so for me, I am always and you can ask anybody on our team. I mean, I am. If they say they can big build 10 a year, I'm going to say, OK, how about we try to do 15 or the dreams are huge. So that's a big thing with this is you get a construction guy that wants to do a construction company, but he's sick of that was my pitch to him. This guy's been in the industry for 40 some years. And he's, I love the business, but I'm sick of payroll. I'm sick of worrying about the next job. I'm sick of dealing with a bunch of owners of different properties. I'm sick of all these things, bidding. And so I said, what if we could come in? Because we have a back office here. I said, what if you can come in? What if you don't have to worry about any of that? Don't for, all, it's our own projects. So don't worry about that. All the billing will be done. All Everything will be done for you in our back office. And he said, yeah. And you get a salary and we'll give you a little ownership in each project. That's the biggest thing you have to think about is, the best investment you can make is in your people. My goal is to make every single who is for sure going to be worth 10 plus million dollars. And they started with me at a million or less. That's for sure going to happen. And we've even got employees now that are buying some shares because we do a little better program for them. So the best investment you can make is in your people. Nobody follows a pessimist. So always be excited and upbeat. Nobody wants a leader that is discouraged and boring and sad all the time. So Keep upbeat, shoot huge. I'm talking like huge. If you're doing apartments and you want to be a billionaire, say, okay, how can I build one a month? Okay, maybe that is 10 years out or whatever. It's, but just ask the question, how can I build one of these every single month? And then build a roadmap to figure it out. And your team is going to be like, this is awesome. <laughs> so I've been doing an exercise and it's been something I recommend when I'm coaching people as well. And my coach gave it to me which is how life works and how information works. It just trickles. I don't believe any information is new. It's just recycled across yeah. everyone. So the an exercise that I've been doing right now for Action Academy, which should hit a million ARR this year, which is sick. And this Dang. didn't exist when you and I spoke last. Dude, that's amazing. Yeah, I know, right? So it's just like, he said, create your org chart for today, for the end of year, and for three years in the future. Like your yeah. dream org chart. What positions, and this goes back to EOS traction model, Gina Wickman kind of style of entrepreneurship, where it's craft out your positions and then fill the names into the positions. So what I do is I say, okay, here's this position today, like CEO operations, sales, marketing, fulfillment, slash community, right? And then I'm like, okay, and then I'm going to need a sales team. If I want to get 100,000 or a million, I'm like, this needs to be over here. This needs to be here. This is what this team needs to look like. And here's their top 20%. Actions and activities that constitute a win, right? Yeah. And then you start putting names in. And so when you're hiring for someone or like you're casting your vision, you can show the org chart and say, here's where we are today, here's where we're going. And then they can see, I see where I fit in this. So is that something that you do similarly when you say, hey, okay, I want to be doing 12 new builds per month, 12, yeah. 12 new builds per year, one per month, $20 million facility. So do you break that down and you say, okay, I need garage doors, I need operations, I need building, I need construction, I need this equipment. And then you just start building that org chart first and then you start filling the seats in. Is that the same process? 
Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So I figure out, you know, what, and I look at buckets because it's a Warren Buffett, Gary Theraldson mix, my two mentors. And so like Gary, Warren Buffett's got 80 different companies and he's got a president or a manager that runs it and he lets Correct. them operate independently. So I treat all my, my who's the same because that, that's my management style, but they all treat their employees all great. But the, I'm sure their employment, you know, whoever their staff is, I don't like Warren Buffett is, is it's their thing. I don't step on any toes. But yes, I build an org chart and say, okay, if I want to be in construction, I'm going to need a guy that has been doing it that for a long time. Same with development, same with self, all of it. But the thing that I really look for is passion. And I think I mentioned this on the last one, but passion is huge. I can, I don't know if, I don't know what it is. I can just tell when someone's actually passionate about something like our self storage sure. guy. He probably dreams about it. <laughs> the guy that runs our equipment dealership, I know he dreams about it. You know, our guy that's in construction, they, they just love what they do because you cannot buy passion. You cannot buy it. You cannot train for it. If they've got passion and they're good people and they mat match your morale, everything else can be trained and fixed if needed. But again, most of the people that come in and be president managers for me, the who's, these are people that have already been wildly successful. And I just am very fortunate to have the chance to have them work with me. So it's all about the vision and the passion. Is there any way that you stack rank the importance in the order in which you perform your M&A? So for instance, when you're buying your first company, I know that you had a background in like equipment when you first started. So obviously that was the first domino to fall. But yeah. when you're... So for somebody that's maybe looking to vertically integrate self-storage or multifamily, the same can apply for somebody who's trying to vertically integrate an Airbnb business. So maybe you buy a cleaning business. Maybe you buy a software company. My friend does house flipping. So he bought a house, like a, a digital house flipping software like company. Oh, wow. So there's so many different ways that we can apply this. Is there like an order in which that you you stack ranked your your acquisitions or did it just show up when it was supposed to show up and you say, okay, here's the different pieces to the pie that I'm looking to fill for a complete pie. Then let's be on the lookout for this. And then all of a sudden you start seeing opportunities as they present themselves. Yeah, I think it's the latter a little bit. You build out that roadmap of when it can happen. But one of the things that I did finally learn is there's a fine line between vertical integration and distraction. And cool. my, okay. my new number I look at is I need... I like to have two to $250,000 net income per employee needed. For example, like in our construction company, the employees needed to the net income saved or made by having our construction companies, probably about two to $250,000. Because again, our construction company isn't like most. We don't have to have salesmen looking for work. We don't have to have marketers. We just have supers, PMs, and a president because it's our own work. It's the same product. It's, it's a science. For example, though, I like, gosh, we spend $60,000 a building plus on signage, and that's 50% margin. And we should buy a sign manufacturing company. But I looked into it, and the net income per head would be like 50,000 bucks. I'm like, not really worth it. Same with the electric electrical company. If we have our own electrical company, HVAC, all these things came out, though, it was like 50, 60,000 net income saved or made per head. That to me is where you start getting into distraction territory because I love people, but the more employees you have, with it complicates things. So that's that's how I am. It doesn't. Can you hit, hit on that metric? Okay, hit on that metric a little bit more. A quarter million per head. Yeah. That's, so, so it's like a, it's like a return on it's a return on headcount almost. Not a return. It's more of a net income per head. So let's just say you go start a garage door or not garage door because that works. Let's say you do a sign company. Okay? Sure. So I learned that a sign company that does $6 million in revenue, and these numbers might be a little off because it's been a while, but more as an example. 
$6 million in revenue. Their net income is $600,000. E. Problem is, yeah, the problem is, and that takes well, first off, the problem is you have 10% yeah. net margins. <laughs> but if you started it, I could probably start that company for a couple million bucks, 3 million bucks, right? So the return's decent. The problem though is it takes 12 people. So you take 12 people divided by that 600,000, you're making $50,000 net income per head. I'm looking for companies that make, that make 200,000 to 250,000 per head. So if that sign company could be run from by two people or three, I would have done it, but it needed 12. So that to me is a distraction, right? People can be a distraction. So when you do the numbers on a garage door dealership or construction or equipment rental, those numbers work. If you take our net income on those companies per employee needed to run it, it's way, way better. Where did you come up with a quarter million? What's the significance of that? really wasn't. I actually realized it later on because I started like we did the garage door dealership and all this stuff. And then I was I tried the garage door thing and it just mentally didn't work. And then I tried to think about doing electrical and HVAC and it just mentally didn't work. So one time I was sitting at home and I'm like, and I'm a big, I'm a, I like to simplify things down to a simple sentence. So I'm like, okay, why don't they work? What is it? What is the common denominator in what does work and what doesn't? So after playing around with numbers and all that, I realized that the stuff that I was saying yes to had a high net income potential per head. And the things that I was all saying no to were all around that 50 to 60,000 per head. So for me, that's like just my new simple, oh, okay, that's a pretty good... And it's not the only thing I think about, but it's a really easy, hey, what's the net income potential? How many employees is it going to take? Divide it up. And I'm like, okay, if it's not 200, then it's a distraction to me. I like it. That's the first time I've heard about that. But yeah, I, mean, I, I, make up a I like weird. it. I like it because when you think about it, and then it's just a, so it's margin, right? So then you're looking at because the more the higher the head count, then the more you know potential for <laughs> a bunch of headaches. Higher the head count, the higher the headaches. And so I like that because if you're making 250 net income from an employee per head, and you're paying them 60, yeah, there's a there lot of margin. Go, that's a no brainer. It's a one emotional person to work with because people, yeah. everybody's we're humans. So humans are the toughest thing in any business. So let's try to have less of that. I love them, but to streamline it. <laughs> yeah. No, I heard about that. The term first got brought to me interviewing Matt Moshery. So Matt Moshery is the CEO coach of Naval Ravikant, Brian Armstrong. Um, oh, yeah. So a bunch of Silicon Valley guys. He was the first person yeah. that actually brought that up. Ironically, in the tech space, he was saying, you've got like the Googles and the Microsofts and the Apples bloated thousands and thousands of heads. He's like, how do you do massive revenue off of 10 people? Yeah. He's like, That's a more efficient organization. That's a way better acquisition. So yeah. much better. That's what we always look for 100%. And not only that, like we try to bring tech into our company too. So we have a proprietary selection on sites, multi-step system, incomes, populations, traffic counts, rental rates, all the above. And it shows because like we have a facility that opened in December of last year and our projections from public storage said it shouldn't be 50% full until the end of this year. And we're 50% full already. So mm. again, our sites are showing because of our site selection, but it's something that we've talked about putting into AI or, a, or some sort of a formula to have our land guide be able to spit out facilities a lot quicker. So we always think ahead. We always think, yeah, how can we streamline this? How can we bring tech into this? So it's just, I think that's the way to go. What other back of the napkin math do you do when you're analyzing a prop company for acquisition to bring into the umbrella? 
I'd say those are the biggest thing because really our main focus is under is underwriting facilities. Well, these verticals are great because at the end of the day, if you to sum it all up, we've got about 30 employees now because all the employees in our storage facilities are public storage employees. Uh, we pay for them, but they're not our employees. So I don't count those. So we have 50 on our payroll or 30, excuse me. And we probably net on all of our verticals combined, net of all salaries, net of overhead of the holding company and everything. We probably net four to five hundred thousand a facility. So you do twelve a year, we're netting, you know, call it six million a year net. And then our equipment dealership is the only subsidiary of ours that sells outside of internal. So they make another six, seven hundred thousand a year on our ten million in business they do outside of our own. So other than that, we don't look at a whole lot. We're just trying to keep it simple with employees. We're trying to make sure that whatever we do is movable. What I mean by that is like the other thing I didn't like about the electrical company and HVAC was okay, we also build in California. How is that going to work for license and like shipping Correct. garage doors over and GCs? Like that's easy. But now you had to get the license in there and it's a mess. And they're trained. That's the other issue too is barriers to entry. HVAC, electrical companies, they can go and just get a pickup and some materials and start their own company. So that's a big issue to me is we want things that are hard to get into like self-storage. It takes a lot of capital. So I hope that answers your question. We spend more time though on underwriting properties. Yeah. It's funny. It's just funny because there's this whole like a philosophy that I play around with is like ego, right? And like this is a good transition into your five Fs and the more philosophical conversations that you and I always end up getting into. But it's yeah. just for me, I don't quite understand how people can be cocky. So yeah. when you think of wealth, the stereotype, the first thing that people think about, not necessarily listen to this podcast, but think of the country clubs, the Ferraris, the Jets, the PJs, all this different stuff. And it's like you think of this very loud, brash, like egotistical guy or girl, like the kind of like the Grant Cardones of the world. Now, that's yep. kind of what you think about when you think about wealth. But it's just like, when I talk to you... It's just, it's very easy to stay effing humble. You know yeah. what I mean? But you understand what I'm saying. Is, and then you go out of your way to get around the Garys of the world and the billionaires. And so, so I feel like people that do it the right way, it's like, I'm about to make a million dollars a year. And that's cool. But I don't think that's that big of a deal because I interview you and I'm friends with you and I'm friends with, and it's not a comparison thing in a negative context, but it's just, yeah, I love winning, but it's just, yeah. Hey, just remember there's levels to this. So I'm yeah. curious about your perspective there. Yeah. And I find myself comparing myself to the Warren Buffett's and the Gary Thurlton's. I have to catch myself. That's the one. If you're chasing having something that somebody else has, it, you will never be happy. Cause, yeah. Cause you'll never get there. There's always gonna be some, somebody with more. And the one thing I've learned is the Grant Cardones. I mean, there's people out there that do that. And I think that's more marketing for them. I think that's a way they went at it. And it's Maybe. great. But it's the Hollywood, like you watch Succession and all these movies about what billionaires are like. And it's funny, like the billionaires that I know or study, no. no. Warren Buffett <laughs> does not sit and go into meetings every day in a suit and tell people what Gary or Warren Buffett sits in his office and reads. Gary Thelton, when he was building a hotel every eight days at his peak in the 90s, he went to the office three hours a day. His who's did everything. He lived his life. And with his, he was with, he never missed a sport game once. I always ask his kids and they said he was the best dad ever and never missed any sport events. He was always, he's a great dad. I think he had a really good balanced life. And yeah, he wears 
you went, he, he flies Allegiant. He's wearing an NDSU sweater. Mm-hmm. Same with Warren Buffett. Like, yeah, the billionaires that I know are so different than what Hollywood projects. Like, you can be a good person and be wealthy. I think wealth is a magnifying glass. It just shows who you are a little bit more. My dad always said, the only thing worse than an asshole is a rich asshole. That's the only Correct. thing. Because <laughs> it, it, wealth is a magnifying glass of who you already are, in my opinion. So money doesn't do it to you. Yeah. And I don't mean that necessarily from a neck. So there's two different, there's two different lenses that could be viewed, viewed through. One of them is which like the comparison and the lack thereof, like I lack this, that this person has. And then that's, I think more so you see it all the time, left and right. Like the richest neighborhoods in the world are like, your private jet's better than my private jet. Your yacht's bigger than my yacht. And it's a giant dick measuring contest. And I don't necessarily mean it from that context. I just mean it from the context of, I feel like if you're playing the game, then you can win no matter what massive level that you win at. If you're doing it the right way, you're around people to where you're consistently the small fish in the big pond. Yep. And if you play that up. game, then you can win at the highest levels possible and never get an ego about it. 100%. Yeah, just make sure you're in the right rooms. Like You said it perfectly. It's, I obviously went into a room of Gary at a young age, so there's a huge gap. <laughs> so leveling up is going to take me a, a few decades but always be leveling up. Try to be the least successful in any room. Try to be the least smart in every room and then strive to try to be that in, in a very humble and friendly way. It can be friendly competition, right? Like you and me, yeah. a few other friends of mine, It's we cheer each other on. We want us all to be crazy successful. That's the goal. There's no negativity at all uh, around that. I just think it's funny because it's just different mindset levels. And sometimes it's hard for me. Talking to you is hard for me to digest sometimes. And it's very rare that I can't digest something like an idea or a thought. The idea of you going and taking like your who's at such a massive level to where you're like, oh, I want to get, I want to build this many storage facilities. So I'm going to buy a construction company and have somebody making millions of dollars that works for me that does a construction company and this guy. And it's just it's a bit hard for me to digest. So it's, it's so much fun for me because then like I'm talking about, hey, guys, here's how I'm easily going to grow this to a million dollars of recurring revenue. And they're like, what? And it's hard for them to digest. So it's just it's a fun recurring theme. So I want to use that as a quick pivot. I just did a newsletter about the concept of winning. Yep. And I talked about in the newsletter that you look at the Michael Jordans, you look at the Tiger Woods, the Tom Brady's. And when you watch these documentaries like The Last Dance or you watch Tiger's documentary, sometimes you realize that it's not something extra that they have. It's they actually lack something that most people have, which is an off button. Yeah. And that's what separates them. That's what's different. They don't have anything extra. They just lack the ability to focus on anything else besides their one thing. And so everyone's got a different scoreboard with which they constitute winning. And so it's foolish to compare your scoreboard to anybody else's scoreboard because your winning looks different than my winning that looks different than somebody that's listening to this for winning. So what does winning look like for you? I think that's a good point to good time to bring up the five F's. Yeah. And I appreciate that. Before I go into that's the biggest thing is, you know, people are always like, oh my, I was horrible in school. I was like a straight C student. I hated school. I don't know. I was bad at tests. The point is you do not need a high IQ to become wealthy. This is not three-dimensional chess. Temperament is more important than IQ in this business. You just need the temperament. You need to be able to make decisions and stick to it and ignore the noise like that. That's more about what we do. But I get, my success is these five Fs. And I've been trying to live by this a little bit. Finance, which that's something that's been easy to me because I've been obsessed with it forever. So that that's already that's always been there. Freedom. I felt like I've always had freedom. So that's always been really good. 
family. My family life has been awesome, but I want to make sure I keep it that way. I want to make sure I'm present at home, right? I'm home a lot, um, I'm, which is great, but I want to make sure I'm present. So I'm working on that. And I've done a really great job. The last, I got a beautiful wife and three beautiful boys, five and under. So that's exciting. Faith, again, faith doesn't, faith is different to everybody. For me, I like to try to go to church, bring the kids to church, but some people faith is really being involved. And some people's faith is different. It could be different religion. It doesn't matter, but whatever your faith goals are, and I've been doing a lot better at those. And then the biggest one as well is fitness. I was horrible at fitness up until January 2nd. I got a trainer and I'm proud of myself. I'm like as fit as I've been. (laughs) And I'm crushing it. I've changed my life with that. So right now I can say proudly, I am living my five Fs. But again, I'm human. This has only been, I really started January 2nd of focusing on my five Fs and I've been crushing it since then. But that's not that long in the big picture. So I'm just going to try to keep doing that as any human would. So my goal is to keep those balanced. That is my goal. If I have all the, fi- if I'm a 10 out of 10 in finance and I'm worth billions of dollars, but I have nothing else in the rest of the Fs, that's not success to me. Yeah. That, that's I think, my, what I, I think that's huge. And that's why, we, that's why we get along. And that's why a lot of people that come on the show, is, I say no to a lot of people because it's very easy to, I have a lot of people that are trying to constantly come on the show. And it's just, oh, yeah. if I don't really know you necessarily, then I don't know. Like I may give it a shot, but I also say I also just scrap interviews as well, because it's just like, we all have to have the same definition of winning just like that's how i want to win like i want to be a great father i want to be a great dad i want to be a great husband i want to be fit so it's the same sounding board that's how i view winning i just got invited to go to columbia on a wednesday and i flew out on a friday that's winning for me freedom like that's what i want my life to be and it's i can do that today so does it really matter if i'm worth 50 million but i can't do that then what was it worth for me that's what <laughs> so, I yeah yeah I it's important to build these areas of margin and focus on like your scoreboard right yeah so what which parts so you said that fitness has been the one that you've been struggling with the most lately in the past yeah so lately I've been crushing it but up till January sixth or second is when I started that was not good so I'm actually eating good I'm I got a trainer like oh I'm just because I was if I, back in December I went and graded my F's right and I'm like okay like faith I can to church a little more for the kids like it's good. Fam- family was good. I just said I need to be more present. I'm home a lot because I love being with the kids and the wife, but I need more present. Can you get in your mind? You're thinking about business. Yeah. Tough to turn. Oh, on. yeah. Finance, good. But yeah, fitness was the tough one for me. And I'm doing good now. But the thing that's helped me a lot with fitness is just having to remember back and have to zoom out and be like, my brain, like my mind is what's causing all of this. Like this is yeah. all coming from in here. And there, it goes back to, I don't remember who said, I think it was like a Zig Ziglar quote where he's, so imagine you have this racehorse. He goes, and you, you've got the, the prize, multi-million, $10 million racehorse. And then this racehorse is like your income generator. And would you feed the racehorse beer and McDonald's? No, you'd feed it the best food. You make sure it's out the pasture running its laps and getting its training in. He goes, so you're telling me that you would treat a horse like this, but then you've got your own body, which is infinitely yeah. more valuable. And you're eating beer, you're eating McDonald's and drinking beer. And that's always like the story that like helps me snap out of it. And I'm like, because like yesterday I was unhealthy and today I went and golfed and I drank a little too much. And I'm just like, okay, let me go out to the gym after this and get my reps and get everything rocking again. Dude, yeah. But yeah, so that's interesting that you say that. So the trainer has been something that's been the major difference for you. 100%. Yeah, it's a virtual trainer too. So like he can design it if I'm at home or at a gym or traveling. So he designs it. And then there's a nutritional side to it as well. 
And this ties in all the Fs and fitness and freedom, all this and finance. It all ties in. I, le- I heard a quote the other day, and I, I might butcher it, but it was something happiness is partly, anyways, sacrificing what you want today for what you want tomorrow. This delayed gratification and working for something and knowing you sacrifice something today to have something more tomorrow, whether that's money or fitness or family, that's happiness. If you just do everything you want, the easy route, the lazy way, you'll wake up in 10 years and think, who am I? I'm not fulfilled. I haven't done anything. I took the easy route out my whole life and it will catch up to you. And so happiness is biting the tongue and doing things now because it yields dividends for decades and years to come, whether it's children or fitness or health or whatever. You mentioned before that you realized that working additional hours was not going to get you to billions of dollars. You had to go through your who's. And that's something that I still struggle with personally. And it's something my coach had to call me on where in my mind, I kept thinking, more so what I was thinking, and here's how I frame it, and you, I think you'll understand me because our brains work the same way, where it was just like, okay, here are my goals. If I'm not spending every waking free moment I have working on those goals, then I don't deserve those goals because I'm being lazy because I'm not working. And if I'm, yeah, and I'm, if I'm just sitting here and I'm taking a walk or I'm relaxing, that's lazy. And I don't deserve that goal because I'm not getting after it. And so it's my coach has been having to tell me, he's like, you can't hustle your way to like tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. He's, you can't. Yeah. You can't. And he's like, the best people. And that's why when you mentioned that quote about Gary, like working three hours, being in sweats and going to every single ball game, like that's why we do it. So I'm curious about how you were finally able to snap into that realization and any levers that you pulled that helped with that. It was tough for a while. Growing up on a farm, you're always taught to be busy. Always yeah. doing something, you put, grab a broom. So for the first couple of years, honestly, it was pretty tough. But I think that's where it leads back to passion because, you know, what does work look like is the question. So everybody, when you say, well, what does work look like to you? And they say at the office, doing emails or in the ditch shoveling or whatever work looks like. What work looks like to billionaires is actually just living their ordinary life. But they're always thinking that. And that comes with passion. When you're passionate about something, no matter how mm-hmm. much you try. It doesn't stop. Yeah, you're always thinking about it. And, and Gary will say it. I'll say it. The best things I come up with, they're not in this office. The office is where I come to catch up with people and think about what's going on with their stuff. All the ideas and the billion dollar stuff I come up with is on a trip or in an airplane or in a car or watching a show or on a walk or whatever. That is where the ideas come from. Idle mind. You need an idle mind a clean mind, a fresh mind with that passion, that's where you come up with the ideas. Not oh, it's so hard, dude. Nobody talks about this stuff. It's so hard. It is. What I did, how I'm baking margin in is I don't take calls before noon now. So I have no meetings before noon. Before noon, it's just me like consuming content, creating content. It's just the mornings are content. That's it. Perfect. And then in the after, yeah. And then the afternoons are when I bake all my calls in. And I had this belief where I was just like, okay, like I've got like these days, everything's overlapping. And I have to keep reminding myself over and over again. It's it's your business, dude. Like I keep snapping back into, oh my God, this is on my calendar. This is controlling me. I'm like, it's my business. I can take that off. I can move that. You got to control it. And that's kind of. Yeah, and that's kind of like the same thing. So you look like Jeff Bezos' calendar. He has putzing time. He said he's, his peak meetings, and I followed that. So like for me, I'm up at 6 o'clock with the kids, my wife and I both. Mm-hmm. And then she brings them to school about 8, 
then I go upstairs. We have a house, I work out in the house gym, shower, head to the office, get there about 10-ish, 9.45, catch up on a couple of things, usually have a lunch meeting, maybe one other thing. And then I'm usually done by two or three to do whatever, a walk or whatever. And then I get the kids at five. I pick them up every day, bring them home and then start over. And I have all my high IQ, anything I need to be high IQ on, I do those at from 10 to lunch. That's my most productive hours for my brain, peak efficiency. So I try to make those meetings right there. But everybody's um, different. You should know yeah. yours. Yeah. And it goes back to the perfect day exercise. And that's why I take my community through that is I'm saying, hey, guys, like, what does a perfect day look like? What's a perfect week look like? If you had your dream business where you're running your business around, building your business around your life, not your life around your business, like, what does that look like? And it took me a bit to figure that out for me. And for me, especially had to do with traveling. So for me, it's funny what I'll do. Dude, I will, uh, I was so used to driving in my car, like in corporate America. That's when I started listening to podcasts. So I found that if I'm walking, it's not like some ADHD. It's not enough stimulus for me if I'm walking to listen to a podcast, I have to be driving. So it's so funny because in the morning, I have nowhere I need to be. Like there's no, I don't have to go anywhere. I could do this anywhere. I could do this by the pool if I wanted to. I will get in my car at 7 a.m. and I'll just start driving. And sometimes like I'll use that. I'll just listen to a podcast <laughs> while I'm driving because that's how I that's best hilarious. remember the podcast. And sometimes I'll be stuck in rush hour traffic and it's just hilarious to me because I'm not angry about it at all. I'm just like, oh my God, this is I'm so good. productive for me. <laughs> that's so hilarious. weird, dude. That's something See, so me, weird that I do. I haven't done, I, I used to do a lot more walks than I do now, but for me, walks are good. Like I walks, I seem to comprehend the things, but it's usually when I'm yeah. driving the same. It's like when I'm going to the office or away from the office or I'm doing a tour or driving, that's when I do my books. Shoe yeah. dog. And I got a bunch of books I've been reading lately that are just awesome. And I do all my audio. I love reading Shoe Dog right now because it, Phil Knight did. And for people listening, Shoe Dog is the Phil Knight founder of Nike. And he was traveling around the world. He did the whole thing that I did. And I'm reading through all of these like massive like f ups and failures that he oh, went yeah. through, and I was like, "Dude, how adorable was it to for me to think that this was going to be easy? Like that this oh, is going to yeah. be like a simple process." Yeah, that's cute. I'm like, yeah. this guy is like fighting with China, these factories in China, twenty four seven. Dude, that's there's problems. They just look different. I know. Yeah, he's that is such a good book. But yeah, he he went through a lot. But I love the book how it was just. Really well done. The other one I love is Bob Iger, The Right of a Lifetime. Both of those two books have been my favorite when it comes to like storyline of somebody's past. They just crushed it. Yeah, I love those, man. Tell people about your foundation. Oh, yeah. Um, so that's the better thing I've been working on. So I've realized that giving money efficiently is as hard as making money efficiently. Abernathy Holdings was created for people to buy shares of it. And then we would go and make from our past returns quite do quite well on, on their capital for them since that's a tough thing to do. It's tough to make money on money for profit. Hmm. Then I realized that these people that have the money now after making it with us or somebody else, then it's not, how do I give it efficiently? You can give a dollar to a guy in the street, but is there a better way to give a dollar to affect more efficiently? And with on, we partner with Unseen. Again, it's not about the how, it's the who. So Unseen's out of Fargo, North Dakota, and they they basically accelerate the fight. So what they do is instead of sending Americans and people over to help fight human trafficking, they find local groups in those areas in Thailand or Bangkok or wherever, and they fund them. They say, here's the materials and the training of how to raise more money or how to save kids more efficiently or whatever it might be. And they've went out and every dollar donated 
to unseen last year turned into $9.75. So 975% return on that dollar then was deployed to save children. And the coolest thing that I love though, and I'm a big supporter of is we, it's called Calling Guardians. So what that is basically all these employment groups, they have these options for employees to donate and all that. Calling Guardians is even cooler. It's basically a company taking a stand and saying, we're going to donate a dollar per day per employee. All you have to do is show up to work and a dollar goes to fighting human trafficking. And you can match it if you want, but you don't have to. It doesn't really matter. Simple. So I'll do it on this podcast. I was saving this for you. I thought you'd like it is I personally, at the Abernathy Foundation, I will match the first 200 employees dollar for a day for anybody out of this podcast that signs up. I'll match it. So it's be 48,000 bucks roughly. I'll throw in because I think it's the coolest thing. I love it. And it's systematic. It's based on employees. Dude, that's rock. Okay. Where can people go? Yeah. So go to callingguardians.com. Sign up there. And then I know the guy, he'll let me know because it'll probably come in around this time. I told him I was doing this and up to 200 employees, I'll match that. But I, and I can go on forever about human trafficking. We all know it's a serious thing, right? There's 50 million people being trafficked today in the world, 13 and a half million kids in slavery. And for me, kids are my weakness. I went to Thailand in January with the founder of Unseen because I, I said, if I'm going to be telling people to donate to this, I need to see it. So we went to Thailand. I was standing where there was 18 months being taken and sex trafficked. But then I was also in the place of some one of our partners that houses these kids once they're saved. And now there's kids coming out of college that were saved at 18 or six years old from sex trafficking. And they're coming out as doctors and lawyers. It's just crazy to think the lives that have been touched. So if you want to give money efficiently, I can't think of anywhere better than this. Heck yeah, dude. Yeah, we'll have all the links for that in the show description. Andrew, where else can people find you? Where else would you want to direct them? AndrewAbernathy.com, personal page, and then AbernathyHoldings.com. If you want to check out the company, it talks about our vertical integration and projects and stuff like that. Then I'm on Facebook and LinkedIn as well. But uh, Andrew Abernathy, don't forget the silent E. I think on our last episode, we said that too on the Abernathy EY at the end. Uh, Yeah, he's a cool guy. He's got a silent E. All right. Yeah. 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 Remember that. Awesome. It's not the other. It's not the other guy. It's yeah. the EY. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. All right. Thanks everyone for listening. Go and click the link in the show description. Go donate to the Aberdathy Foundation and help all this. That's fantastic because I know for me personally as well, it's difficult to find charities and organizations to give back to that actually utilize the capital because those are almost as inefficient as the government at spending money. So, dude, pretty bad thank you so much for coming on for round two, man. This has been fantastic. I can't wait to do the Billy episode where you're like, all right, just did it. Let's rock. <laughs> I can't wait either. That's going to be the best day ever. <laughs> Heck yeah, man. With that, this has been Brian and Andrew with the Action Academy podcast signing off. <laughs>